The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merritt, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here with you. Brian Graves is at the board. Welcome you tonight. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome those around the country and across the globe listening online. Now we're going to switch gears from baseball and welcome in two Hall of Famers, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. First, our next guest He's a drummer, a record producer, a theatrical producer, and a film producer. Best known as the original drummer and founding member of the Hall of Fame rock band Chicago. Is there anyone out there who really doesn't like Chicago? I mean, everybody likes Chicago. His new band is California Transit Authority, CTA. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Chicago on April 8, 2016, and he received a Recording Academy Lifetime Achievement Award at the 63rd Annual Grammy Awards in 2020. I'm happy to welcome to the show tonight Danny Serafin. Danny, good evening. Good evening. It's good to be here with you. And uh, it's been way too long since I've been on the East Coast, so I'm, I'm looking forward to when, when I finally get back. Yeah, we're, lo- we're looking Coast, forward to seeing Coast you. Friends. Now, now you're from Chicago's northwest side, Danny. Uh, Cubs fan? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, Sox. Ah, that's that's Sox interesting. Fan. Yeah, okay. Yeah. How'd you become a White Sox fan? You know, it, it's it's funny. When I was growing up, Mickey Mantle was, uh, you know, you have Mickey Mantle, those great Yankee teams in the American League, and Ted Williams and Mickey Mantle. Of course, I was, you know, I saw like Ted Williams' last game, but oh, so wow. I got, yeah. I really got, I was a Mickey Mantle fan, and, and so therefore I was kind of drawn, I was kind of drawn to the American League, and um, I don't know, I just always, maybe it was to, to rebel against my father because my father was, a, he died a broken-hearted Cub fan. Oh. He, I'm sure he was smiling when they finally did win the World Series, you know, right. and, uh, you know, a few years ago. So, you know, uh, but and I root for the Cubs. I, I want to see the Cubs do well, but I'm a Sox fan. I, are, you know, I was kind of disappointed that you know they got an early exit, and it was as good a team. But I think they're going to be that team's going to be around for a long time. They'll be back, Danny. Great. Yeah, you're yeah. you're exactly yeah. right. They're, they're, they got some good talent on that ball club, and uh, hopefully Tony yeah, Tony can stick around and uh, and co- see it come to fruition. Uh, as I tell yeah. people, the the only guy in the Hall of Fame whose plaque is is obsolete now, because he he's managed more games, and uh, they have to change his plaque now. So <laughs> that, yeah. that, that'll yeah, be I mean, he's interesting. A friend of mine too. I'm a, yeah, Tony's an old friend of mine. Oh, so nice. I, you know, I was happy that yeah, I'm happy that he came back, and you know, I really was. I was more texting with him. I never got to, I didn't get to, to any games this year, but I watched them all. You know, I got the, the MLB package, but I'm watching the playoffs and, you know, uh, you know, we live and die with our home teams, right? Oh, don't so, we? Yeah. You know, I'm a Bears, I'm a Bears fan and, you know, that, that's, that can be painful. That is painful. But, uh, you know, hey, you, you keep it, you gotta keep it in perspective, you know? You stay you with know, your team no you matter what. It, that's what I tell yeah. the kids. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't let it ruin more than one day of your life. <laughs> exactly, Danny. You're right. Now, you you played in uh, 
a band called the Executives, which was Dick Clark's road band. Yes, yes, that was the first band that I. Well, that that was the band that changed my life. I was fifteen, sixteen, fifteen and a half, sixteen when I was when I when I got the audition for that band, and it was a it was life changing for me because I was I quit school. I was in street gangs, and I was heading the way wrong direction. So, from the time I joined that band, which I, I, I we'd have to do the chronology as far as the years, but it changed my life. You know, yeah. I, I made my living as a musician, and I no longer was a street thug and all that stuff that goes along with gangs and stuff. And really, really saved my my life. I, and I'm always grateful for that. And and that's where I met the original nucleus of Chicago, uh, Terry Cass and. Walter Parasader were in that band with me too, so it's a, you know, it's a, and it was my introduction. That was a horn band as well, so yeah. Uh, it, uh, Interesting. Okay, now who do you who do you say are some of your uh, influences on your drumming, Danny? Well, you know, my very very first drum hero was Gene Krupa. Right. And you know, anybody who Gene Krupa was a big band drummer from the '30s and '40s. And you know he was a he he was a big star he was a big star, and so, um, anyways you know and then from there with the Buddy Rich and then Ringo you know Ringo obviously had a profound influence on a lot all of us rock drummers everybody yeah and Mitch, Mitch, <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy Hendrix's drummer Mitch Mitchell and then the session the session really historic you know the legendary session, the legendary Hal Blaine so there, there's been a lot of guys and I used to study. You know, when I would, when we would be in the East Coast, I would, and I was in New York City, I would study with Papa Joe Jones, who's a, a really famous and legendary bebop drummer. So, you know, I've had, I've had, I've had, met, you know, I've been I've had a great privilege of studying with some really great masters. Tell us, Danny, a little about the uh, the formation of the Chicago Transit Authority, which, of course, we know is the precursor to Chicago because they threatened to sue you. <laughs> Because you use their name. Yeah. Tell us how how the, yeah. the the transit authority got together. Well, as I said, uh, the, Walt Parasader and Terry Katz were were part of that first band, that Jimmy Ford and the Executives. And right. uh, ironically, we got we got fired from that band because they they kind of merged with a, a super a super group and another group in Chicago, a horn band, and they formed a band called the Mob, and we. You know, we were kind of out in the cold, and then we, 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 we uh, kind of, we kind of floated for a year and a half in a in a cover band, making good money, but just a cover band. And then when that band was going to fall, was really falling apart. I, um, you know, Walt Walt was being groomed. Walt was going to DePaul University, and he was getting his degree the degree in the clarinet, and he was being he was actually being groomed for the second chair in the Chicago Symphony. Wow! And Terry, uh, who was a bass player at the time. And a closet guitar player. No one knew we, but no one knew but Walt and I, what a great guitarist Terry was. And, and so Terry was had gotten an offer to go to the West Coast with a band, a rock band out of Chicago, called the Roven Kind. And you know he he was chomping at the bit to get out to the West Coast with the hippie thing and the flower power. <laughs> and so I mean, all of a sudden I'm I'm looking like I'm going to lose my two musical soulmates, my brothers. And so I talked to Walt and I said, listen, Walt, let's let's. Yeah, I'm gonna miss you guys. You know, we we're close, I man. We we have a great time together. I I don't want to let this go. So uh, I talked to Walt into to giving it another chance with a band. I said, let's put a let's put a band together, a horn band, 
of the best players in the city, and that's in Chicago. And, you know, he, he had just gotten married, so he said, let me talk to my wife and, you know, and run it by her, and he ran it by her, and she gave him the green light and her blessing. And, and then we talked to Terry and said, Terry, why, why don't you stay and play guitar in this band instead of going to the West Coast and playing bass? We know, and Terry thought about it for about a minute and a half. He said, all right, you're right, I don't want to leave you guys, you know. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the beginning of the nucleus. And then Walter, uh, Walter grabbed... James Panko from DePaul University. They 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 were in the jazz band together, and um, Lee Lockmain, the trumpet player, our trumpet player, was uh, you know you know he wanted to be in the band. He just came to me and said, "Dan, I want to be in this band with you." We said, "Sure." I mean, you know, we, he he was a great he, he played with local bands. He was a great trumpet player. So you know that was kind of the nucleus. And then we found Robert Lamb, uh, who at that time his name was Bobby Charles. Uh-huh. And he was on the south side. You know, we found him on the south side of Chicago. And uh, the original band only had six members. We had no bass player. And Robert Lamb played B three, organ and with organ with bass pedals, and which oh, was a big okay. thing in those days. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we st- we started out as a cover band, and, and it was it was a formidable band. I mean, it was really a great band that, at that point. And then uh, Peter Cetera at the time was in a band called the Execute the, the excuse me the Exceptions. Mm-hmm. And they were four guys who sang like Peter Cetera, but in different ranges. And, God, they were so good. They were amazing. They, they, they'd do good vibrations in a club, and you would walk in and think it was the record, and you look, and it's them on stage. They were that wow. good. They were so good. And so Peter had a falling out with that band, and we got Walter and I got wind of it. And, and we said, hey, we got to grab this guy. Because we needed a bass player. We kind of realized that, that, you know, we needed a bass player, and, and that would, Peter would be... To get Peter in the band, that would have given us three great voices, you know, Terry singing the lower stuff, Robert in the mid, and Peter. And and so Walter and I worked on Peter and finally convinced them to join our band. And that that was really, to me, that was the icing on the cake that really made made the band, you know, what it was. And so, you know, at that point, the producer that was going to sign the band that Terry, that offered Terry, Wondered why Terry turned down that gig, and he talked to Terry, and Terry told him, "Well, you got to hear, our, you got to hear this band. It's mm-hmm. a full-on horn band, you know. Of uh, you know, he and and his name was James William Gershio, and he knew a lot of the guys that were in it. And he came to one of our rehearsals, and he said, you guys are, are the best band I've ever heard in my life.' And he signed us to a production contract, and then uh, we were still a cover band. We were really building a name in the city, but." Once we made the switch from cover songs to original arrangements and original songs, we started getting fired. Wow! <laughs> yeah, that, that's all these, something. All these clubs, all these yeah. clubs that wanted us to play dance music and cover music. <laughs> yeah, they weren't they weren't into us playing original arrangements of hit songs. It was really cool what we were doing, but so we called our producer and we said, and this was in uh, 1967, We called our producer and we said, hey. We're starving here. We're getting fired. And so if you're going to bring us out to the West Coast, you better do it now. So he did. He brought us out to the West Coast. He, uh, he, we rented a house and he rented a house in Hollywood for us. A two, there were seven of us in a two bedroom house. We left our, <laughs> those of us that were married and left our wives' band. It was just, you know, uh, it was, talk about communal living. Yeah. And really, and, and we all, we set up our equipment in the living room and, and for the next six months, we rehearsed and conceived the Chicago Transit Authority album. And that was kind of the beginning. And then it was, we, we, we recorded it 
in the winter of 68. It got released in 69, spring. And, you know, kind of the rest is history. Right. You know, really. We got Danny Serafin tonight on the, on the program. And, uh, we're talking about the beginnings of, uh, no pun intended, of the, uh, Chicago band. Now, as you said, Danny, you guys were in LA and you re- you landed a regular gig at the Whiskey You Go Go. How how was the the whiskey? Who did who did you run into out there? Oh, you name it. The, you know, <laughs> Jim Morrison, The Doors, uh, yeah, Steppenwolf, uh, uh, Blues Image was was the band that played there. And then the one night, uh, one night we 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 were starting to really build a name and drawing big crowds. And one night we got off stage and finished our set and there's Jimi Hendrix in our dressing room and we're like we nearly we nearly fainted you know Jimi Hendrix was like a guitar guy yeah he was you know was it and he, he he said you know you guys are the best band I've ever heard in my life I loved and he loved Terry and you know from that point on every interview he did for the next few months uh he he just he, he talked of the band he's he raved about the band and then when our album first came out he took us on tour open for him and helped us break our album you know it was a it was a great thing it was just a you know it was a great experience and you know uh it was really a, a launching launching pad for the band the whiskey what was jim like it was cool yeah it was very cool i mean it's you know uh i don't want this to sound degraded but when he was straight and i don't mean he, he was really gentle soft-spoken and, and when he was you could tell because he was a drug god too. You know, he was he, everybody yeah. identified LSD, and you know, so he was. They were doing a lot of drugs, as everybody was. I'm not just them. Everybody was doing a lot of drugs. Everybody yeah. was doing acid and, and smoking a lot of weed and hash and all that stuff. And, and and but he was he was a really sweet person, really nice person. What was it like here in Chicago on the radio for the first time, Danny? <laughs> well. You know, when we our first album came out, it was kind of the advent of uh, FM radio. So we were all over the college stations and and uh, you know underground uh, FM stations, and it was really a great. It, it was really gratifying, you know, uh, but it was a slow build. And in those days, in order to make it, you really needed to get on AM radio, and so. I remember our first album. We released a bunch of bunch of. We released like four songs, three or four songs off our first album. And none of them made it. They all kind of stiffed. And we did our second half. But but nonetheless, we were touring like we toured 250 days the first two years, wow. first and second album. Yeah. So it was. We were building and building and building. And I remember we recorded our second album, and. We recorded a piece of music called the Ballet for a Girl in Buchanan. It's a 12-piece, it's a 12-minute, uh, you know, symphonic-style piece with multi-movements that James Panko wrote. And I remember driving on the San Diego freeway, the 405, in my Volkswagen Beetle that had 150,000 miles on it. <laughs> and and I and all of a sudden, I hear this just this jockey say. Here's the latest hit song from the band Chicago. We changed, they changed the band, then shortened the name to Chicago because of the, the conflict with the transit with the CTA yeah. in the city. And I heard this song and, and make me smile is, is, is the beginning of that 12 minute piece 
and the end of that 12-minute piece spliced together. I'd never heard it in that form. Ooh. So I, I, I pulled off the... I pulled off the freeway because we didn't have cell phones in those days. I, I, I made a beeline to a payphone, and I called our manager and was cussing them out and said, what, "How could you let them do that to our music? You know what the f are you doing?" I was cursing. I was using every curse word I could. <laughs> he said, "Danny, eighty-five percent of the, the, the AM stations in the country are playing that record." I said, "Oh, can I buy a Mercedes tomorrow?" Yeah. And he said, "Yes." There you go. <laughs> The next day, I went out and bought a used Mercedes, not a new one, and, and I've been driving them ever since. So, <laughs> that's uh, the story. Yeah, great. Yeah, make me smile. With, make make me smile is my Mercedes song. <laughs> that's great. Now, uh, I haven't read your book yet. People have have given it great reviews. It's been out for a while. Uh, it's called oh, Street yeah. Player: My Chicago Story, and it, it chronicles some of the disagreements you had with with the band that uh, really precipitated you leaving. Tell us a little bit about that, Danny. Well, you know, over the course of um, I was with the band twenty three years. Yeah, you know, over the course of uh, there was there was a lot of changes, and um, I mean, it's hard. It's really hard. I try to give you the Reader's Digest version. And of course, it's my version, you know. <laughs> so, uh, basically, during the drug era, and the band was there was a lot of serious drugs going on in the band, and I was basically the straight at, at that. At some one point, I just said, I can't do drugs anymore. I can't one is I, I can't perform it on any consistent level. And two, somebody's got to have their wits about them in this band because I just saw how what the cocaine and uh, you know it's just everything was doing to the band, and so. Uh, you know, I had to step on a lot of toes to get to get shit done. You know, yeah. I just had to get to step on a lot of toes. And during the course of that time, you know, it pissed a lot, it pissed some people off. And 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 so there was. It's it's really hard to you know it's much really it's described in detail in my book. But in essence, what happened is the new guys that I brought into the band, and, you know. Peter, you know, the guy that replaced Peter Cetera was Jason Sheff, and the other, and I also brought in Bill Champlin, and basically, they, they kind of didn't like the fact that a drummer was the leader of the band. After Peter left the band, I pretty much became the de facto leader of the band, and you know, it just conflicts. You know, people, and all of a sudden, the band straightened out, right? You know, and I'm, I was proud of them because really the drug thing finally played played out, and, and you know we lost Terry Katz because of it. You know? Yeah, and, and there's a lot, there's a lot to the story. But anyways, you know, it just it was it, it was it shouldn't have ended the way it did. You know, I mean, but sometimes when big money and politics and band politics and record company politics get in the middle of this stuff, you know, ugly things happen. And, right. And, uh, it's unfortunate, but to be honest, uh, I'm a better person and a drummer for today, and I feel like you know I wouldn't be who I was, who I am today, without all of that happening to me. So, you know, I have great affection for uh, everybody in the band. I really do. Um, what happened? I'm sure they have regrets. I have regrets. You know, it's part of life and learning from it. And uh, but the beauty of it is the music still sounds great today, and it's still selling, and it's still, 
you know, made a big difference with that music, and that the Chicago songbook is a, is beloved. And yeah, so I'm, pr- I'm proud of that. I'm proud to have been an important part of it. It didn't end the way it should have, but you know that happens. That's part of life, you know. And uh, I'm very happy where where I am. Uh, you know, I wish the band well. I'm, I'm, you know, they they work a lot, they play a lot, and they generate a lot of royalties for me. So you know, God bless them. I yeah, I, I'm very I'm very you know. I mean, I and and I I don't think I would like um, performing with with the band the way it is right now. Um, it's just it's different. It's, the industry has changed so much and so many of these bands are playing with tracks and click track and they have to play with a click track because they're playing with tracks and it, it's just different yeah but i with my band and everything's natural everybody's singing there's mistakes there's sometimes it, it doesn't sound perfect but you know it's really emotional it's raw so i feel good about where i'm at you know in my career and uh and i'm i wish them 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 the best good and, uh you know, it's at some point. I really do hope uh, we all kind of come together and enjoy, and enjoy some, you know, glass of wine, some Italian food, and toast to the great music we made together. And um, you know, uh, that's what I want. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. That's it. That's it. The great drummer yeah. Danny Seraphin with us tonight on the program. Now you're inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of Chicago in 2016. Uh, I was listening to some of the inductions today. I, I have Rick Wakeman uh, coming up after you, and uh, I, his speech was unbelievable. What, what do you remember about the induction ceremony uh, for Chicago, Danny? Have you ever watched my Have you watched my speech yet? I haven't. No, I'm going to check it out after this. Yeah. You, you, you need to. You need to. You need to. Okay. I, I won't say anything, but you just. It was like it was. It was kind of a kind of a heaven and hell thing, you know. It was heaven to, to be able to, to be with the band. Hell, because it was still weird. There was still weird dynamics going on. Uh, my speech, uh, I let it all. I let it all hang out. Is all I can tell you. You have to hear it. Yeah. So, okay. I I will uh, check that out uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You have to hear the speech. It's. Um, I dropped ten f bombs and, and HBO left them all in. <laughs> yeah. When they, when, they, when they rebroadcast, I just. I didn't do it intentionally, but I just got emotional and, you know. No, everybody does, Danny, you know, I, when they're up there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was a great night. It was a great moment, and I'm very proud of the, of the Hall of Fame induction and being a part of that, and it's a great fraternity. A lot of people, a lot of people, and it really pisses me off, a lot of artists poo-poo it and say, oh, it means nothing. It really means nothing. That's bullshit. Right, know? right. It means a lot. It you're sure in, does. You're in the company of the Beatles and Stones and... All of, you know, yes, there are people that aren't in that deserve to be in it. Hopefully they will be someday, you know? Right. So, exactly. yeah, the Hall of Fame was a, it was a great experience. Uh, you know, if you watch my speech, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Check that out, folks. Now, I read somewhere, yeah. Danny, that you believe that Chicago's most significant contribution might be its inspiration to others. Without a doubt. I mean, yeah. I, I, I meet so many musicians and accomplished musicians that drummers that say that we were a great influence on them. And that, that means a lot to me because I know there were, there were great artists that influenced me in a great, in a great way, in a good way. So, you know, um, 
that may be our I, well, our greatest contribution is all the joy that the music has brought to people's lives. So, you know, really, as an artist, what more could you ask for but to have made a difference? You know, exactly. In a good way. How many uh, how many guys have have a uh, a song that the, that's a wedding song that that's played all over the world? I mean, it's a few a few notes on the piano, but as soon as you hear those few notes. You know exactly what's coming up, and uh, a, a beautiful song, Color My World, that's just an example right there. Yeah, and that's only the tip of the iceberg, really. Yeah. That's only the tip of the iceberg. It really is. What, so, what's coming you know, up, Danny, with CTA? Well, you know, with CTA, is we're, we're, I'm still, we're still performing. We just did... Um, we just did Jazz Alley in, in Seattle and, and did really well, and, you know... Uh, wherever the band plays, people love it, and they should because it's really the, it's really reminiscent of the early early Chicago. It really has that vibe, and, and that's what people that's what I believe people like about it the most. Good, yeah, and, you know. I mean, there's still there's, plugging. If they if you have, if you go to our website dannyserafin.com, it's it's our, our schedule there, and really that's that's basically. You know, performing at the casinos, performing art centers, rock clubs, you know, and a lot of benefits. We do a lot of charity work, so nice. You know, I'm I'm really proud of that, and and ha- and, and and it's gratifying to to still be still be relevant in contributing <coughs> to you know a better world. So exactly, yeah. To to be in demand, to to be uh, recognized. Amazing. Uh, I read also, Danny, that you said to to be a good drummer, you have to develop your own technique, and uh, good timing is essential. But it's the technique that sets the great drummers apart. Explain yeah, that quickly. Well, with me, so much of my technique is based upon jazz drumming, but yet I'm a rock drummer. So my, I think when on my tombstone. What the, what's going to be etched on my tombstone is he 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 was he could he could merge jazz and rock seamlessly better than most people. That's what his that's what his strongest uh, you know trait was in his playing. I mean, the strongest thread that ran, that goes to my playing is is, is is being able to to met to you know to merge jazz and rock seamlessly, and amongst other styles in Latin. You know, jazz rock, to me, jazz rock drumming, or jazz rock, is, is a, it's like a license to steal. You know, it's really a wonderful, you know, it's a wonderful concept. It's a wonderful genre yeah. that really was for, it had disappeared for a while, but, it, you know, it's really back, in my opinion. And so, um, you know, that's probably the essence of what I, what I said in that is basically my, you know, my, the dynamics and the, and the, the sensitivity of jazz mixed with the raw power of rock, you know. Interesting. So, yeah. Well, yeah. D- Danny, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you with us tonight. I, I really oh, thank, thank you, you for I've, taking I've enjoyed it. for taking the time out of your night to uh, spend summer with us uh, up here on Long Island. I appreciate it. Wow, I love I love the East Coast, and I'm, you know, I have my I have I, I don't know if, I don't know if you're familiar with five five towns. The five towns. College. Yeah, That's sure. Down, world. down in yeah. uh, the, by Kennedy Airport, down there. Yeah, 
Yeah. They, they, I have, they, they, they awarded me wonderfully, uh, the honorary doctorate degree. So I'm actually a doctor. I have a doctorate in music from Five Towns University College. It was a beautiful night in my life. And Who's better than you, so Manny? Who's better than you? Oh, I don't know. I think there's, <laughs> I can name quite a few, but, but I'm very, very, I'm very grateful. Very grateful. Well, again. You know, um, Again, thanks a lot, and uh, we'll look for you coming coming around town. Please do, please do, and make sure you you come and say hello. Okay, we'll do, Danny. That's that's Danny Serafin, folks. Uh, great time, great conversation with the former drummer of Chicago, Danny Serafin. Coming up next, we stay in the Hall of Fame, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, that is. And the Yes fans out there, Rick Wakeman's coming up next, so stick around. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks. We're back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB, beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. Brian Graves, my trusted colleague behind the glass. I welcome you tonight and thank you for tuning in. Those around the country and across the globe listening online, we now stay with the Hall of Fame, but not the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, Canton, Springfield, or Toronto. It's the one in Cleveland. Our next guest, he is a CBE, a commander of the Order of the British Empire. He's the first CBE we've ever had on the show. He's a keyboardist, a songwriter, producer, television and radio presenter, an actor, and an author. Some great books out there. He's best known for being in the Hall of Fame with the band Yes, but he's had several great solo albums. I have them at home. He's inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with his former bandmates in 2017 by Geddy Lee and Alex Lifeson of Rush. The ceremony was held in New York City. Uh, if you've never heard his acceptance speech, it's out on YouTube, folks. Go check it out. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. He plays the Paramount in Huntington this Friday night, October 22nd, as part of the even grumpier old rock star tour. I'm happy and honored to welcome to the show tonight, Rick Wakeman. Rick, good evening. Uh, good evening. Thanks for that unbelievable introduction. I'll, I'll probably owe you money for that, do I? Yeah, I just send a check. That's all. <laughs> I will do. That's all. That's all. Um, Let's talk about football first. Uh, who, what teams are you supporting these days? Um, well, you're talking soccer or American football? Oh no, soccer. Yeah. Oh, so soccer. Well, I, 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 my main song that I've always really supported uh, is is a side called Brentford, who have just gone into the Premier for their first, well, for the first time they've been in the top division for seventy four years. Yeah. And I first went to Brentford. 
1954 when I was five years old. Uh, so that's a long, I've been supporting them for a long, long time. Um, <clears throat> and they're, they're sort of, I've always been my main side. Um, I always tend to support as well the, the local side wherever it is that I'm living. Um, so uh, uh, I, uh, for, for many years I supported Manchester City because I was living up north. Mm-hmm. Um, I also I also support my local side where I'm living now, which is a, a, a side that were a, a, a former Premiership side and doing well, but are now you know they've, they've gone into the doldrums a bit. And that's Ipswich Town. Ah, okay. Uh, but, Bre- but Brentford are my main my my main side. Gotcha. Okay. Now, you did a lot of session work. You you left school to do session work, and some of your early sessions you you played uh, with David Bowie, uh, T Rex, Elton John. Cat, you, you played the piano on "Morning Has Broken," correct? Yeah, I did. Yeah. 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 I, that was a, that was a great fun session to do. Um, uh, yeah, I was. I did a lot of sessions. You come right for uh, about oh, quite, a, quite a few years and. It was the days when the the, the uh, sessions were really hot to trot in, in in England, and you could do two, three a day. Uh, you could really do a lot, and I was lucky. I worked for some really great people. Uh, I played on some. I was lucky enough to play on some great records. I also played on some terrible ones as well. But you know. That's, yeah, we that's we nice. all have our our skeletons. Sure, Rick. We we know. Right, that, yeah, that's true. Space Oddity, you were on too with with uh, Bowie. Yeah, I, I did Space Holiday, I did the Hunky Dory album, Life on Mars, and all those tracks, and I did a, a couple of Ziggy tracks with him as well. Um, yeah, I did a lot with I did a lot with David. In fact, when um, we, we were neighbours for about oh, crikey, four years, when we both lived in Switzerland for a, for a period a period of time. So, uh, yeah, he was a good man. Definitely, yeah. What, what a what a great talent, and, and you you did a couple of tracks on Madman Across the Water as well, right? Yeah, Elton's a good man. Another fo- big football man. Oh, he is he, Watford. He, yeah, Watford. You're quite right. Was, they're really struggling at the moment. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> uh, really struggling. But yeah, we we've uh, yeah we 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 go back a long way. Elton and I. And he's he's a uh, uh, he's a great player, but he, he doesn't like playing the organ. Um, ah, he's a, yeah. He's a, because he's such a great songwriter, it's often forgotten what a what a really good piano player he is. Uh, but he do, he doesn't like playing the organ of Hammond. And on on Madman, uh, he wanted some Hammond on, and he just come and said, "Well, will you come and do the Hammond?" Because I, I hate playing the organ. I said, "Yeah, of course I will." So uh, I went along and did that. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, even when he tours, Rick. Um... Uh, so on something like funeral for a friend, he he won't play. He comes out and does the piano piece, and somebody else is playing the organ during that song. Yeah, and uh, and he's he's always done that. I mean, I did a, I actually did a show with him way back in, I'm cracking about nineteen, either nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy. Um, he did a show. And I, I I did the organ on that. That was at the uh, Royal Festival Hall in London. Um, he's he's a he's a he's a good man as well. We we spend a lot of time talking, just talking football. Yeah, he's a big fan. We're speaking with the great Rick Wakeman tonight on the program. Now, I I read somewhere, Rick, that when while you were with the Straubs, uh, during one performance, Salvatore Dali came out and you pushed him off the stage. <laughs> that is true. Actually, <laughs> um, I I didn't I didn't know who he was. He just wandered on the stage and it was in Paris. Yeah, um, we we were playing in a sort of a circus. He wandered wandered on the stage, um, 
I mean, it wasn't wasn't very high up for it, but he uh, he was waving his stick, and he was he was uh, I didn't know who he was, and he was um, um, well, he was he was ruining my solo. I was yeah. a little piano solo at the time, and I thought, well, the security would come and take this old boy off who's waving his stick about, um, but they didn't. So I took matters into my own hand, and I, I, I cut up off the piano, went over to him, and and, uh, and basically in slightly stronger terms. I said, uh, "Go away!" Yeah, <laughs> and and, uh, and the uh, and he didn't, so I, I helped him on his way. But uh, <laughs> I mean, he, he didn't hurt himself or anything. Yeah, he he survived. Yeah. <laughs> T- tell us, Rick, a little bit how uh, you got into yes and got involved with those guys. Well, that happened um, when I was with Straws. We actually supported them on a. Uh, on a, on a, he supported Yes on a, on a show in the north of England, and I, I just liked the band. Uh, I just I just liked the way that they were different in, in so many in so many ways. And um, it was about, about three or four months later. Uh, yes had been over doing their first tour of America, where they supported um, Iron Butterfly, mm-hmm. and they came back to England. And it was Chris Squire who called me. Uh, the late great Chris, who called me at two o'clock in the morning, which uh, didn't please me that much, uh, <laughs> just to say they were looking at changing the band around and wanted to move in a different direction. Um, would that appeal to me at all? And I said, yeah, but not at two o'clock in the morning. Um, and then, of course, I discovered after being in the band that that, that was Chris's hours. Chris was uh, Chris sort of came to life about four or five in the afternoon. Um, I feel like he, he didn't do mornings. I don't think he ever, I don't think Chris ever saw the sun rise. Uh, I think if he ever had done, it would have frightened him to death. He would have thought it was a UFO or something. Um, but, uh, I, I went along to have a rehearsal with the band and that was, uh, it was, it was so good. I just had a, I thought, I, I can, I, I just felt that, I, I, they, they had stuff that they could offer me and I had stuff to offer them, so it was going to be a good match. And the interesting thing is that on that very same day, uh, David Bowie called to ask if I wanted to uh, be a part of the band he was putting together, Spiders from Mars. So it was an interesting day, that. Yeah, I'll, I'll say. Two, two great job offers in one day. Uh, what, what's your favorite Yes album, Rick? My favorite Yes album is Close to the Edge. Okay. Um, because it was, uh, I, I look back on that album, and and what we what we managed to do um, it was just so uh, it was just technologically impossible back then um, but we, we never wanted to be defeated on things and we and I think that was what was great about that period of time we we, we if we had sounds and ideas we wanted to do we didn't care what it took to, to, to achieve it I mean for example the, the piece close to the edge has got what we lovingly call this sparkle tape at the beginning mm-hmm. uh now that took over two weeks to make. We went out uh, doing all kinds of things. We re- recorded all kinds of weather, winds, uh, trees, uh, leaves rustling, and heaven knows what else, and bells and, and street noises. Uh, it took ages to do. Uh, when if you want to put it together now, you can do it and, uh, with modern technology in, in about twenty minutes. Um, but back then, it was it was. It was really quite an achievement to do things like that. Yeah. There's other tracks I really like, of, of course. I mean, Roundabout off the Fragile uh, is, is just a track that I'm, my, 
I just think it's a, it's a great prog rock, rock and roll track. Immortal. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's great. Cause, I mean, I, I was, uh, I, I mean, I was, I, I, I was lucky enough to be a fan of the band. And so it's great to be in a band and be a fan as well. I mean, occasionally you do get it in sports as well. You do get the occasional footballer, uh, who actually plays for his boyhood club, but it's not very, it's not very often that happens. No, that's, that's exactly true. A great point, Rick. Rick Wakeman with us tonight on the show. I want to talk a little bit about your solo work. Six Wives of Henry VIII and Journey to the Center of the Earth. I had those albums. Now, I read somewhere, Rick, that you played Six Wives at Hampton Court Palace. Yeah, I did. Wow. I did, did you invoke any, you know, it was uh, Catherine Howard or, or uh, Anne Boleyn uh, hanging around with you? Any uh, sightings? I think they were all there. Yeah. Actually, the interesting, <laughs> the interesting thing was the. Uh, in the audience, I mean, the Queen gave us permission to do it there. Yeah, uh, which is fantastic. Wow! And uh, uh, and we were limited to. I think we had, we were allowed to have five and a half thousand people there. That, 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 that had a limit for safety reasons, and a lot of the people who came along dressed up, and there must have been uh, about a hundred or so uh, women, ladies there who dressed up as the as the as the Queen. There were quite a few Henrys. And quite a few people who dressed up in Tudor period as well. Amazing. It was an amazing, it was an amazing yeah. night. For, for, for you Yanks out there, don't know, Hampton Court Palace was, uh, built by Cardinal Wolsey. And he, uh, yeah, he, he yeah, fell Hen- into Henry's, disfavor, yeah. Yeah, Henry basically, uh, gave him an opt, opt, optimate, <laughs> give it to me. Right. Or, yeah. or, or I'll remove your head, which he was that, very good at. Yeah, that was Henry's pad, folks, and that's where Rick played Six Wives. That, that, that's amazing. Yeah, we, we, we filmed it, and it was, it was just a, uh, it was just an, an amazing, it was an amazing two nights. It was really, really tremendous. Loved it. Loved hearing about that. Now, why were there so many back and forth periods with yes, Rick? Uh, joining, leaving, joining, leaving. I, I think, um, <laughs> well, it's the old expression, really. How can I miss you if I never go away? <laughs> um, and I, 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 we always, it, I would never hang around if musically it, it wasn't working. Um, and uh, uh, the first albums were great. I really enjoyed doing those. And then we were putting together, we put together Tales from Topographic Oceans, which I, I really. I really didn't get on with the tour, and I felt that um, there wasn't uh, there wasn't much I could offer that album. And I, I I did whatever I could, but it was not. I didn't think it was the right direction for the band to to go in. And so I, I you know, I had a chat with the lads, and I said, "Look, I'm uh, I, I'm off." <laughs> Basically, yeah. I didn't know, and, I did, and that's when I recorded Journey at uh, the, the same time, uh, just after that. Uh, and then they recorded uh, an album called Relayer, right. uh, which was which was probably the most uh, jazz influenced album they did. And I couldn't have offered anything to that, so that that all worked well. And then I went back for um, uh, going for the one, right, which we recorded in Switzerland, uh, which was uh, uh, that was a good album. There were some good tracks on there. Uh, Awaken was a uh, I still I still think is the epitome of a good frog rock track from that period of time and I stayed with them yes. for that and then uh, Tomato uh, and then it, it all sort of folded it all sort of semi-folded up in, in 1980 
um, we were recording an album in France, and uh, uh, Alan White broke his ankle skiing. <laughs> we all went home, and 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 John and I decided that was a, you know, we'd had enough for a bit, so yeah. we went away. But the, the interesting thing about going away from a band and coming back is you come back. Um, you've, you've worked with other musicians doing different things. And so when you go back, you're bringing more back to the table. You're bringing more ideas that you've got from, from other, from other areas. Good point. And I think that happens a lot when uh, somebody leaves a band and then comes back. Uh, I mean, in a strange way, yes, it's a band. You never leave it. You know, it's always a big part of your life. So I always felt every time I went back, I was taking some, some different things back that I'd, I'd learned from the period that I'd been away. Why, Rick, did you decide to start wearing capes, and uh, when did you start that? <coughs> that started in Hartford, Connecticut. Wow. was the first one. <laughs> um, it was 1971, and we were on tour, and we were basically fourth on the bill everywhere we could. We were playing when people were walking in, uh, and it was... Uh, but it was great fun. I mean, I just like uh, uh, ten years after, I think, were the uh, headline act at that time. There was Jay Giles on as well, uh, and then there was us. We, we, I think, we were allowed to play for thirty-five or forty minutes at the most at the beginning, and uh, uh, obviously because we were fourth on the bill, you you rarely have ever got a mention or a review or anything. And then there was one newspaper that, that gave us a review, a really kind review, just sort of said, uh, "Oh." Uh, the opening that evening was a band called Jess. Look out for this band. They're very talented young musicians. It was, it was a, it was a really nice review, which was great to have. Uh, and it went through the various musicians of, and then it said about me, uh, because I had a lot of keyboards. And back then, uh, there weren't even keyboard stands. I used to buy chests of drawers and cut them up to put the keyboards and the things in. Yeah. And they wow. said, uh, they said Wayman was surrounded by, uh, a myriad of keyboards of all different heights with, pedals all over the place and so when he was trying to stretch between one and the other with his legs and arms he looked like a demented spider and I read and I said what's that all about and then the following night when we played I became very aware that in fact I did look like a demented spider because <laughs> I was stretching from one place to the other and, and legs stretching and sometimes I did things I got into positions I certainly couldn't get into now no. And uh, and I thought, well, there's, there's, there's no way around that. And then we played in Hartford, Connecticut. We were doing a small festival in, in a, uh, a, a, a baseball place, baseball ground, uh, about, I suppose, five, six thousand people. And, and we were one of the many bands on the, uh, on the, on the bill. And, uh, as a lot of little festivals were back in those days, they were put on and introduced by the local radio station. And the local rock radio station, they were introducing it. And as we were waiting to go on for our bit, um, I noticed the, uh, the, the, the DJ, he, he was, he was wearing a three-quarter length cape. And, uh, and when he, and it was interesting because when he turned around, uh, he was quite a large man. I thought, wow, that cape hides a, a multiple of, uh, of sins. And, nice, yeah. Sins. <laughs> and, I thought, that could be my answer. And he came off stage, and we'd just been paid. We got $200 a week. But then we had to pay everything, our food, heaven knows what else out of all that. And I said to him, look, I've got 10 $20 bills here. That's my entire wages for the, for the week to live on. I want to buy your cape. Will you sell it to me for $200? And uh, he said, he said, mm. And then I waved the money in front of him. Yeah. He went, you're all right, then. And <laughs> I, I bought it and put it on. 
And when I when I came off afterwards, um, uh, Michael Tate, who's the, the greatest lighting um, man ever, um, uh, he he was looking after some of the stuff that we did, and he came over to me and he said, "Rick, that's your answer." But he said, "Not a three-quarter length black cape. You need a sparkly cape. Picks up the lights. It needs to be long and it needs to be very heavy." Ah. I said, well, when am I going to buy something like that? And he said, I, I know a girl who would make it for you. And he said, when we get to Cleveland, I'll uh, I'll introduce you to her. And she did. And uh, she made me uh, about six capes in all, all the, the, the uh, shall we say, the, the, the most uh, well-known capes of all that time. And it's, it became a sort of a bit like... Um, I can't do a rock show. I, can't, I don't do it with the piano shows because it's very hard to wear a cape and play the piano. But uh, for the rock shows, I, I can't do a, a show without wearing a cape. It doesn't feel like it. it's like a, I suppose, an actor in a play, uh, not dressing up to play the part. Um, it's it's uh, they're they're great fun. Great story, Rick. Yeah, Rick Rick Wakeman going to be playing the Paramount in Huntington Friday the twenty second. Also, Rick, you bought a racehorse from Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mum. How did you get involved with the Queen Mum? Tell us that story. <laughs> well, well, believe it or not, I had met her um, before, I mean, uh, when, I was, uh, when I was a student at the Royal College of Music because uh, uh, there was a wonderful harpsichord maker called Thomas Goff, uh, long, long since, since dead, and he was a uh, second cousin to the to the Queen Mum, and I used to go round to his house in London to, to play the harpsichord, and uh, that's where I first I first met her um, as a young student. I mean, she was a real character. And then uh, a few years we're going on of quite a few years, 1970, or oh, crikey, when would it have been? 1974, 75, something like that. Um, I, uh, I I was. I had a great friend who uh, who, who used to re- review horse racing matches, and I wasn't—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm not a betting man or anything like that. Um, um, but he introduced me to a, a, a trainer called John Weber, and, uh, and and John said, "Have you ever ever thought about owning a horse or whatever?" And I went, "I'm about owning a horse, but it, it's it's sort of in a strange way, it sort of appealed to me to have, you know, um, especially." Um, uh, steeple chasing, uh, uh-huh. and, uh, and hurdling because I, I just, it, it, they're sort of, uh, it's not as expensive as the flat racing, which is a fortune of money. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought, well, you know, he, he said, if you get a good horse and, uh, and you get a few places and whatever, he said, you can have a lot of fun. And, uh, you said, you can, you can, you, you can almost pretty much pay for your, you know, for the facility, the training facilities. And he said, I know where there's a, a year old gelding. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's currently the stables in, uh, out near, near Swindon in England. And he said, it's a year old. He said, it's owned by the Queen Mum and, uh, it's, it's up for sale. And, uh, he said, uh, he's a beautiful, beautiful horse. Uh, and, uh, he said, well, we, you know, if you want want to be interested in buying him, we could get him, and then I'll give it a year, a year and a half, and then he'll be ready to start, you know, start start racing. And he said you'll have great fun going around the courses, you know. And the other thing as well was, of course, you get 
like like 20 tickets for the tetrastals for all the races and and I just thought this could be just great fun. Yeah. Uh, so I, I went I went down to Swindon where uh, it, was, it was quite funny because um, the Queen Mum just happened to be at the stables because the royal oh, family no. had huge yeah. horse racing. <laughs> oh that. yeah, right. And she was she was there and. Uh, the, the trainer, uh, they brought the horse out, and the horse beautiful, uh, tropical saint, the, the horse. Tropical name. saint, and, right. Yeah, and, uh, he, and she came out, and, uh, I told the trainer, I said, I've, I've, uh, I, I've actually met the Queen Mother before. He went, oh, that's good, she'll like that. And she came by, and he, he said to her, he said, Mom, uh, this is, uh, uh, Rick Wayman, he's a, a musician, he's the, uh, uh, who's bought Tropical Saint. And she went, oh, that's, that's lovely. And he said, I believe you've met before. She went, have we? And I said, yeah. I said, we met at Thomas Goff's house uh, in London where I played the harpsichord and, and you were there quite a lot and came in and listened and that. And she was a re- she had a real sense of humor. She went, oh, I don't remember any of that. <laughs> and then I walked on and all the stable lads and that, they're all sort of giggling. And then she went about two two meters up the line and then she... And then she grinned and came back and said, of course I do, Thomas is my cousin, and, the, and uh, we had a lovely chat, she was, um, uh, she was she was quite a character, but they do love their horse racing. Oh yeah, they do, the Windsors, and uh, I, I heard that uh, the Queen Mum used to like her G&Ts too, she used to... Uh, <laughs> she yeah, used to... I mean, there's, there's, a great, there's a great story, but it includes a rude word, so I can't really <laughs> say it, okay. but there's a, it's a wonderful story about the... Uh, I, I, I'll, um, uh, I, I, I can, I can say it without the real words of opinion. You have to guess what it is. Uh, basically, she, she turned up for, um, uh, a premiere of a big film in London. Yeah. And there was a wonderful comedian in the queue waiting to meet her in, in just inside the door of the Odeon Leicester Square, uh, called Spike Milligan. Spike Milligan, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the Queen on the Roof, I mean, uh, I mean, Spunk was, was Prince Charles' favourite comedian, and, and the, the royal family loved them all, and, and uh, you know, they they could take a, a few more <laughs> advantages, shall we say, of the royal family than other people could. And as she came through the door, uh, now this is all being mic'd up and filmed to show in the actual cinema, in the theatre, uh-huh. so they can watch the Queen Mum arriving before she takes her, her seat to watch, so they're hearing everything. And the Queen Mum came came in and trips, not badly, but just did a little trip, a, a, a step. And Spunk Milligan uh, said, oh, here she comes. And this, I'll change the word here. Here she comes, drunk again. <laughs> and she just, uh, and this all went out in the cinema. Oh, man. And, and she, walked, she walked down the line, ignoring everybody, and went right up to Spunk Milligan and said, Spike, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I, I got a good story for you, Rick. I have a friend who, who was a member of Her Majesty's Metropolitan Police, and he yeah. had one of his boys used to do the beat in front of the palace. Right. And one night, a car pulls up to the palace, and it's Spike Milligan's driving the car, and he goes, I have to get in. You know, Can you open the gate? And he says, well, what do you want to get in for? He looks in the back seat. Charlie's laid out, pissed as a rat. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's very interesting with the with royal family. I'm very like yeah. I, I, I know, I know, the, I know them all, and uh, they're very, 
Um, they've got great senses of humour, and and they have a bit of a life as well. I mean, I'm I'm uh, a member of of the oldest entertainment order in Europe, which is the uh, uh, Grand Order of Water Rats. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and I was I was actually king rat for for two years. But there's only ever been. Uh, just under 900 of us in 135 years, and includes great people like Laurel and Hardy and uh, Bob Hope and, and people. And uh, Prince Philip uh, was a water rat, and Prince Charles is, is still a water rat. Um, Prince Philip used to uh, sneak out of the palace without his bodyguards and without you know, people, and he used to come to the water rats for our, our lodges, which are hilarious. <laughs> and uh, he would... Um, Let's just say he would join in the revelry as much as everybody else. Certainly. And sneak back to the, and sneak back to the palace with nobody knowing. Wonderful. They're a good bunch. Well, Rick Wakeman, I tell you, it's been a real honor and a pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to be with us uh, down here on Long Island. We will see you Friday night, the 22nd. That's at the Paramount in Huntington, folks. Tickets on sale for that. October 25th, City Winery in New York City. And for our buddies up in the Hudson Valley, Rick's going to be at the Bearsville Theater in beautiful Woodstock, New York. Beautiful place on November 1st. And uh, we wish you all the best, Rick. That's really kind. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Rick Wakeman, folks. Well, as uh, Elvis said, radio is a sound salvation. And radio is indeed cleaning up the nation, so you better do what you were told, listen to the radio. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Roger McDowell, Bobby Valentine, Danny Serafin, and the great Rick Wakeman, my engineer, Brian Graves, and you guys for joining us. Thank you. See you next on November 7th with Islander great Bobby Nystrom. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.